Please be advised that today's episode contains sexually explicit material. Turn back now, dear listener, lest what lies ahead swallows you whole. They called us monsters, so monsters we became. We are monsters out of the closet. I'm Thara. And I'm Shreya. Did our warning provoke you? Perhaps it piqued your interest in what we might have in store for you. If that's the case, then you, like many, understand the alluring pull of the forbidden. Sex. Heat. Mystery. Cruising has always been rife with both excitement and the very real possibility of danger. In Mason Hawthorne's Banksia Men, we follow a man seeking to feed his sexual appetite, among other things. Please be advised that this piece contains sexually explicit scenes, gore, and material that may be triggering for transmasculine people with bottom dysphoria. Shaded by a hoary Banksy tree, Jack sits with his legs outstretched, heels kicking into the sand. Gradually, he pushes the sand up into a cool hill, exposing more of the soil underneath. As he crossed the freshwater inlet earlier, he scratched the ball of his foot on a sharp stone. Now the soles of his feet are blackened, and the graze is full of grit. From his patch, Jack can see the beach between the scrubby greenery, the white sand blazing under the midday sun, and the ocean curling against the rock shelf under the cliffs. Scattered like confetti across the sand dunes, Browning, oil-slicked bodies bask on brightly coloured beach towels. In the hours since he's arrived, he's seen only two women. The rest are men, most middle-aged, most deeply suntanned, all bare and utterly unselfconscious. To his right, and a little ahead along the well-trodden paths through the bush, he can see more men lazing in the shade. A couple lie facing one another on their towels, their heads pillowed on backpacks. Further along, framed by a tangle of bushes, Jack can see only the hands and genitals of another fellow who alternates between frenetic masturbation and swigging from a bottle of warm white wine. The air is still under the trees, and he can hear the low murmur of voices and the tinny, insistent noise of music playing through someone's phone. Now and then, the foliage overhead rustles, and Jack frowns at the foreign trilling of a minor bird. Somehow he didn't expect this idyll, didn't expect to feel such peace. Jack looks down at his body, nude except for the micropore tape on his scars, and admires it in the dappled light, admires the dark hair against his pallid skin, the new flat planes of his chest, even the distortions of the surgeon's work, the lump near his armpit and the swelling on his left side. It's all good, he realizes. He doesn't mind being seen. Jack spends the early afternoon sitting on his towel, kicking the dirty sand and reading. Sean comes back to check on him, 
smiles through his beard and asks if everything's okay and whether he's enjoying himself. Jack answers yes and yes, and watches Sean's belly wobble as he lowers himself onto his own towel, and then how his ample flesh moves as he stretches and settles in. Sean drove them up from the city, through two hours of furious traffic, being flipped off and tailgated, and then into the labyrinth of the National Park roads, which sent the GPS into a frenzy of turn-back-nows as soon as they left the highway. Jack looks at Sean, and Sean plays with his phone until he finds a playlist he likes. Jack has plenty of time to look away. So this must be your first time cruising, hmm? It's a lot of window shopping, mostly. Sean smiles, and his teeth are square and yellowed. The last time I was here, it was with my ex. I fucked him down between the dunes, in a little hollow. A man passes by, and Sean follows him with his eyes. Jack watches him watching, looks past him to the path littered with condon wrappers and rusted bottle tops. He jumped on top of me and started bouncing on my cock. It was so hot. Cool, Jack says, and turns his attention back to his book. Jack doesn't hunch over his book the way he thought he might want to. He doesn't need a shield. He lounges. He lasers. The only thing that keeps him from sprawling quite happily is the awareness that once he gets sand on his towel and in his delicate bits, he's going to spend the rest of the day regretting it. Sean takes himself off to swim again, and Jack sits happily alone, glancing up now and then to watch the guys he can glimpse through the foliage, and idly thinking that he could do with a snack. Getting caught up on your reading. A sun worshipper. All bronzed and leathery, stands between Jack and the path. His smile reveals a chipped front tooth. Yep. Jack keeps his place with a finger and flips the paper back to show him the title. Picnic at Hanging Rock. Oh, that's a classic, isn't it? He tugs his penis and Jack notices it is just as brown as the rest of him. No tan lines in sight. There's a movie of it, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Jack leans his weight onto one hand and watches the man's eyes as they track over the tape on his chest. Cautiously, Jack parts his legs. He sees the moment of realization on the man's face and the way he shifts his weight and then steps closer, still smiling. It's a good movie. The man stands in front of him, touching himself occasionally, fleeting, bird-like motions of his hands and he looks out over the beach below through the gap in the leaves while Jack looks him over. He's not too tall, lean and wiry, smelling of coconut tanning oil, and bites his lip. If he went back to his book now, the man would leave quite cheerfully. Pretty busy down there, Jack says, as he marks his page and sets the book aside. Oh, lovely day. The man looks at him with darting glances and back to the beach. Been here before? First time. Jack nods to Sean's vacant towel. My friend drove me up. Are you from the city? Well, my friend is. I'm from Blackwater. After a moment, he adds, south of Wollongong. Well, that's a bit of a drive. A few hours. Jack shrugs and glances away. A dried panxia pod catches his eye with its openings like a half a dozen gaping mouths. His stomach gurgles. I like it up here. He barely has to move to touch his ankle against the back of the man's leg, and the two of them are silent, listening to the surf curling away and the leaves shushing. 
The man turns and crouches, sitting on his haunches with his knees wide for balance. He puts a hand on Jack's shin and nods at his chest. Are those fresh? Mm-hmm. Jack nods. Sore? Jack shrugs. Not too bad. The hand slides up his knee, palm dry and warm, and Jack wets his lips and looks down at himself again, wondering how he looks to this man, and noticing the corner of the tape rolling up at his sternum, the sticky residue black on his skin. There isn't much to say. Jack lays back and the man caresses his hairy belly and thighs, dips his fingers into Jack's cunt and seems pleased at how wet it is. Jack's stomach growls again, but he shrugs away the man's questioning look and reaches down to pull him closer, until they are hip to hip, and he feels the velvety weight of his cock. Jack sighs on the kisses lavished at his collarbones. He slides a hand over the man's back and then up under his chest to tug at his nipple, and looks up through the leaves to the brilliant sky. Coconut lotion and sweat, and a faint spicy aftershave scent fill his head, and Jack sighs again and pushes with his heels to lift his hips, he draws the man into him and shudders with pleasure. It's an easy-going fuck. Jack rocks into each thrust and listens to the grunts and moans from the man, squeezes him and strokes him. When he feels the rhythm faltering, Jack gets a hand between their bodies. He twists his hips to pull away. Stop for a second, he says, and quickly adds, let me on top. The man lies on Jack's towel and Jack kneels over him, and his cunt drools thick and frothy like a dog slaver. A string of it falls and clings to his thigh. I'm gonna eat you out after, the man says with relish. Jack smiles and lowers himself back onto his cock. He rides him hard, bronze hands grip his hips and Jack holds his forearms. As Jack bears down on him, envelops him down to the root, the man makes such a wonderful sound and finishes. He makes another sound as Jack's teeth grip him tight and pull him deeper, this time more pain than pleasure, and then a sigh as Jack's juices get into the broken skin, into his bloodstream, and send him right back to pleasure. The first bit is the trickiest. It's tempting to rush, to gobble him up, but if his flesh tears and Jack loses his grip, then it will be a hell of a job trying to stuff him back inside. So he takes his time savors it even, as his internal jaws work to find purchase, and he spreads his knees and shifts his weight to get just the right angle. Every time there is a moment, just a fraction of a second before his body figures out how to open, when he thinks it will not work, but it passes as it always does, and he feels the sudden, unforgiving pressure of the man's pelvis being drawn wholly into him. His biting jaws take meaty chunks, grab sinews and hook bone, a relentless snatching for flesh, dragging it all deep into Jack, into where there is something else at work, grinding teeth that can pulverize bone and render a man's paste in no time at all. The pelvis is the hardest part. It collapses with a sudden pop, crunch, and is immediately followed by a savory gush of blood. No doubt if he had the time to die of anything other than being eaten whole, the man would bleed out from the pelvic fracture before anything else. As it is, the man doesn't notice what is happening, or if he does, he's too blissed out to understand it. He reaches for Jack's hips even now, rubs his belly and thumbs his clit, he tries to thrust even though his spine is broken and his legs useless. Jack smiles down at the man, 
reaches to remove his hat, takes his watch from his wrist and sets it aside. The man is blonde under his cap, the kind of brassy blonde that comes from the sun, turning to grey at his temples. His eyes are grey too, and surrounded with deep wrinkles, the shape of his smile is written on his skin. By the time the man loses consciousness, he is swallowed up to his sternum, his legs folded flat against his back. Worried about being seen now, Jack hobbles further into the bushes, finds a low branch worn smooth by the attention of a thousand backsides before his, and leans against it while his innards do their inexorable work. He watches a handsome blue fairy wren flashing through the leaves, and keeps as still as possible so he won't frighten it away. When he glances down next, the man is dead, his ribs crushed, a streamer of blood pouring from his slack mouth. Jack looks away. He likes it best to eat them alive, to have them inside him and alive for as long as possible, wriggling and smiling, breathing inside him. A few times he has tried beginning with the feet, but it was awkward and difficult to manage. This is the best way he knows how to do it. He reaches down and smooths a hand through the man's hair. He's still warm. He won't ever grow cold. And then rubs his own tummy, which is growing distended and uncomfortably full. The skull bursts with a fatty gulp of brains, and the arms slurp up like oversized spaghetti, and Jack sits until his stomach settles. He's stretched tight as a drum, insides churning away. He fords his way through the bushes until he finds the estuary and the bend where he emerges is empty of bathers, though he can see a man upstream. Standing in the water, he washes the streaks of blood from his thighs, and then lies back and floats for a few minutes. A solitary wisp of cloud curls far overhead, and with his ears underwater, all he can hear is the rush and thump of his own heart. There was sand on the man's feet, and Jack can feel it grating inside him, grit between his teeth. Later he'll have to get a hand up there and try to get it out, else he may get an ulcer or a blister or something equally uncomfortable. For now he wants to sleep, to digest, and he finds a winding path back to the spot where he left his towel. Sean is absent still, their stuff untouched. Jack finds the man's bag. It's a small satchel that he'd set aside, and peeks inside. A couple of condoms, a near-empty bottle of lube, and a phone. A fairly new phone, Jack presses the home button and it unlocks. No password. He thinks for a moment, then fishes a pin from his own backpack to take the SIM card out and tosses it. He turns the phone off and stuffs it into the very bottom of his bag. He stows the rest of the man's belongings as deep in a thicket as he can reach. Jack picks up his book again, but he has trouble keeping his eyes open. It's getting pretty cold now with that breeze. It takes Jack a minute to understand where he is and who is speaking. The sun's gone over. If we move to the beach, it'll be warmer. Jack sits up. He fishes for his water bottle and rubs his face. Did you want to stay much longer? Jack shakes his head no. Did you have fun? With a smile, Jack nods. Let's head back to the car. Fingers crossed we'll miss the traffic. They gather their things and Jack shows Sean the scratch on his foot and enjoys being tutted over. The walk back across the estuary is quiet and they cross the dunes through clumps of sharp-edged spinifex grass 
and then down the path to the parking lot, past the cold water shower standing rickety and corroded near the fence, and the sign pointing to the designated unclad bathing area. The car is hot from sitting in the sun all day, and Sean blasts the air conditioning on high so they won't suffocate. Start thinking about what you want for dinner, Sean says, and glances at Jack where he's crumpled in the passenger seat. You must be so hungry. In our next piece, we see a monster on the hunt through her lover's eyes chasing the thrill of intimacy with someone who wants to really know you, inside and out. Hungry Red was written by Aya Denise Bautista and read by Lucille Valentine. Her lipstick looks amazing tonight. Red has always been her color. Like this, it's borderline sinful. So deep, it's almost black. She picked out her clothes well to match, her loose button-up made of a sheer, dark material. Her ripped jeans so skin-tight it makes me wonder how she can even move in them. Had the place been lit brighter, I would have been able to see her bra. Black lace, the one that comes in a matching set with equally black and equally lacy panties. The one she knows drives people crazy. Drives me crazy. But in the dark, that's not so obvious. Instead, she looks like a shadow, a part of the landscape, though I feel odd calling a club of all things such a pretty word. Landscape should be reserved for open spaces that look like they've come out of paintings, mountain ranges and forests, and a lovingly cultivated garden. But she makes everything picturesque, even when it's this dark. Still, her eyes know how to find me. I've never asked, but I've always assumed she can see better than most, even in the absence of light. As for me, the only reason I can see her is because I'm so attuned to her. I wonder why. I've also never asked, but maybe she's put some kind of spell on me. That would explain a lot of things. A sudden flicker of colored lights, red, green, blue, cuts through the room before shattering into a hundred pinpoints. They look like bullet holes, affording me a temporarily clearer view of her, standing in the middle of the dance floor like she owns it. Even now, I feel paralyzed where I'm sat, unable to move as she sways her hips to the music, pulsing through the room like a heartbeat. She compared the club to an animal once, I remember. Said something about how it's always hungry, growling, how we've been devoured and now we're just living in the stomach of it, forever lost. She flicks her hair, waves cascading down the side of her face. She tilts her head and the stretch of her neck is just visible enough in the flickering colored lights. Inviting, tempting me to press against her skin and find her pulse with my mouth. My fingers tighten around my glass. I wonder if this is how she felt the first night she saw me. With the way she's moving, I can tell that she's hungry. Starving, almost. 
There's an elegant kind of urgency in the way she rolls her body, and it isn't long before someone takes the bait and approaches. It's a man, this time. He puts his hands on her hips right where her mesh shirt is tucked into her jeans. He's standing behind her so she doesn't even know what he looks like. Not that it matters. Not that I care, either. She doesn't take her eyes off me even as she begins dancing with him. Even when the colored lights stop flickering and I have to strain my eyesight to trace her outline, I feel her gaze on me like some kind of brand. My fingers go cold from where I've been holding onto my glass. I lift it to my lips and take a sip. The bittersweet taste of whatever cocktail she ordered for me earlier in the night flooding my tongue. When I put my glass back down, I hear the ice in it clink together. And I lick my lips. A red light cuts through the room then, illuminating her face. She licks her lips as well, turns around, whispers something in the man's ear, and then disappears. So it starts. The countdown. Five minutes. I pull my phone out from the pocket of my skirt, pressing the button on the side. The sudden glare of light after being in the dark for so long makes me squint until my vision adjusts once again and makes sense of the digits on my screen. 12.38 AM. I unlock my phone and set it down on the table face up, leaving it like that. I see my glass illuminated by the white light. It's half full still, though I think part of it has to do with the ice having melted significantly. The once bright pink of the liquid has turned pale, but when I take a sip, I still detect that bittersweet flavor. Four minutes. I set my drink down, wipe the condensation on my hand with a tissue paper I've pulled from a stack graciously provided on each table. I look at my phone again to see if I have enough time to get myself another drink. Something quick and strong. Maybe a shot of tequila. Three minutes. I pick my phone up and push my way through the crowd. A few hands try to grab me, but I'm used to this, easily slipping through their grasps. Somehow I feel like a shadow myself, a part of the darkness, there one second and then gone the next. When I reach the bar that's significantly more lit up than the rest of the establishment, there's a thin layer of sweat beating above my upper lip, which I wipe. Recognition flashes across the bartender's eyes when I ask for a shot of tequila, and he slides the shot glass towards me with a wink. We'll have to move to a different club after tonight. Two minutes. I throw the shot back, feeling the burn of it crawl down my throat. At this point, the way it settles in my stomach is more pleasant than not, and I let out a long sigh. I rub the nape of my neck, tilting my head side to side, feeling the brush of my hair against the exposed skin of my back. I remember how she couldn't keep her hands off of me before we left the apartment. How she lightly scratched my uncovered skin like a promise for what's to come later tonight. One minute. I look at my phone one last time, then I slip it back into my pocket, do a small stretch, and then head out where I know to find her. The back alley of this club is just like the back alley of any other club we've been to. It's dark, it's damp, and it smells like something just died. I smile at the joke, letting the back exit of the club fall shut behind me. The sound of the door clicking back into its metal frame is loud in the alley, disturbing a cat that's sleeping on top of a trash bin. It meows once, staring right at me, 
before jumping up a stack of garbage bags and onto the roof of the club, disappearing from sight. Then I looked at her. Her lipstick is all smeared now, but it's hardly noticeable past the fresh blood dripping down her chin. She's always a little messy, but I think she does it on purpose because it makes her feel a lot more satisfied with her meals. The man in her grip still has his eyes open, lips parted in a voiceless cry. He's still breathing, I think. Or at least he was, until she plunges the hand she has inside his chest deeper. A thick, gurgling sound comes from his throat, blood bubbling past his slack lips. I hear her quiet chuckle. I hear the sickening squelch of her hand as she reaches even deeper, maybe gripping his heart now. I hear her pleased hum as she bites his neck again and laps up more of his blood, tearing a small chunk of flesh along with it. I lean against the rough brick wall and watch her finish her meal. She pulls away from his neck at the same time she does his heart out of his chest and he drops onto the dirty concrete with a thud. There's no finesse in the way she devours the once-beating organ and I realize then how really hungry she's been. Once she's done eating, I approach her slowly, pulling out the handkerchief I've been keeping in my other pocket. There's a slightly dazed look in her eyes still, but she's sated. I can tell. Her hair has been rumpled a little, a few buttons of her mesh shirt have come undone. Blood is quickly drying all over her chin, but I feel almost reluctant to wipe it off. Like I said, red has always been her color. I wonder if she thinks about the night we met as often as I do. At first, it kept coming back to me the way people who barely survived a car accident would remember themselves inside the car, each detail leading to the near-death incident playing out frame by frame like some kind of morbid movie. The memory of her followed me into my nightmares and I couldn't sleep with the lights off for weeks. But then the memories changed tone. The scratch of rough concrete against my back and the scrape of her sharpened teeth against my flesh, things that kept me up at night in a nervous sweat, turned into something else. Turned into the firm grip of her hands against the bare skin of my waist and the gentle press of her nose against the pulse of my neck. Then I remembered further back. Her dancing an entire room away from me. Me somehow knowing that she was looking at me, helplessly gravitating closer. Us moving together for a while, her fingers in my hair and one of her legs between my thighs. I thought she might have charmed me, lured me into something dangerous. Sometimes I still think that. Why did she let me go that night? Did she know that I would be restless after? That I would find my way back to her on my own, haunted by her memory? That I would let her devour me? It's terrifying not knowing. It's terrifying how every time she locks the bedroom door and turns the lights off, pulls the clothes from our bodies and pushes me into bed, it could very well be my end. I'm not stupid. I know that every time she presses a kiss against my neck, she could easily tear into my flesh with her teeth and watch me bleed out all over the sheets. But I let her anyway. Let her kiss me as much as she wants. Maybe I am stupid after all. But it's been half a year since and I'm still alive. 
My heart still beats safely within the embrace of my bones and flesh. She's made no move to sink her nails into my chest, peel back my skin like that of a fruit and bury her hand wrist deep within the space she's dug. I wonder how long she'll last. How long I'll last. What if I cover your eyes? She asks me now. She's naked, as I also am, sitting on top of our unmade sheets. A blindfold hangs from the palm of her hand. I reach out to touch it. The material is smooth like silk, the color of it as dark as wine. When I look at her, her lips that just hours ago have been covered in blood are stretched into a smile. I can't say no. So I let her tie the blindfold around my head, ridding me of my vision. Everything is total darkness. Lie back, she tells me. I do. The sheets feel soft against my bare skin. I jump at the feeling of her hand closing around my wrist, but settle once more after she shushes me gently. I let her take both of my wrists and press them above my head. She's so strong that she only needs one hand to keep them there. And when I try to squirm free, just to test it out, we both realize that I'm now completely under her mercy. It's terrifying. It's exhilarating. I feel her breath against my mouth. My lips part in anticipation, but the kiss she gives me is a lot gentler than I was expecting. She doesn't linger. Her mouth moves down to my chin, across my jaw, over my cheeks and eyelids. I feel her taste me, her tongue flicking out against my throat, my shoulder, my nipples. Even after she releases my wrists, I know to keep my hands there. I feel her nails, now sharper, drag over my collarbones. I feel her hands, now rougher, trace down the line of my body and squeeze at my breasts. Before one settles on my inner thigh, the other on my stomach. Fingers press onto my skin and nudge my legs apart. Nails dig into my stomach, causing my breath to hitch. She slices across my navel. It's just a small cut, not at all deep, but the sting of it catches me by surprise and I sit up. Fear clogs my throat, real and suffocating, but her hand pushes me back down. I squirm. I can't see anything. Trust me, she says. Then her tongue traces over where I can feel blood slowly trickling from the cut. The noise she makes is appreciative. Somewhere deep down, a sick part of me feels pleased that she thinks I taste good. She says, Red looks so good on you. I never actively thought about how I'm going to die, but if I had, this would have been a scenario. I just want to rip you open, she tells me, the hand on my thigh sliding upwards and touching where I'm most sensitive. Tear your pretty stomach out and eat you all up. I press my hand against whatever part of her I can reach, which turns out to be her shoulder. But I don't push back. I don't know what I'm trying to do. I don't feel like stopping her. Her fingers wrap around my wrist and pull my hand away. I feel her press a kiss against my palm before nibbling at my thumb. Her teeth are sharp now. 
everyone before me were only appetizers, I realize. A long build-up to the main course like some kind of sick foreplay. I guess monsters never get told not to play with their food. I want to ask her, does affection add to the flavor? Does it make my blood taste sweeter? Does it make my organs more ripe? Does it? Or is it not about the taste, but rather the satisfaction of knowing that her next meal has become hopelessly devoted to her? That even right now, with her tongue soothing the new cut she's made on my thumb, I just lie back and accept the impending reality of my own demise? Just a taste, she murmurs. Just a taste. I close my eyes beneath the blindfold. It adds another layer of darkness, but it barely makes a difference. Her hands have slipped beneath me now, one tangled in the mass of hair behind my head, the other on the small of my back. She presses herself closer, claiming the space between my legs. I can feel her just looking at me. I wish I could look back, but I've now found comfort in the shadows. Then her mouth is on mine, kissing me like she's starving. My heart rattles in my chest, swells and urges me to kiss her back. Then it does not stop beating. So you've snuck a taste of that which you were denied, sinking your teeth into the flesh of the forbidden. Was it worth what you lost along the way? Thanks again to Mason Hawthorne and Aya Denise Bautista for their contributions to this episode and to Lucille Valentine for her voice acting. Additional music and sounds were created by Eric Matias. To learn more about our pieces, artists, and readers, please visit our website, monstersoutofthecloset.com. Thanks to our patrons and supporting producers, Lindsay Holt, Sarah Lopez, and Loris Kaland, who make this show possible. And to you, dear listeners, who help us reach forbidden depths. In this spookiest of months, we are hoping to raise enough funds to compensate additional guest producers and editors. We could really use your support to create a fantastic season three. Our next episode, Halloween 3, will be released, when else, next week for our third anniversary. Join us for the hype and stay up to date with podcast news, submission calls, and the celebrations of our holiest day at monstersoutofthecloset.tumblr.com and at pod underscore monsters on Twitter. Thanks again to all of you listeners for your support. We couldn't have made it to year three without you. Until next time, Monsters out. Monsters out.